that just focus on Jesus in the New Testament, it's kind of like watching Harry Potter 7 Part 2 only. Any Harry Potter fans in the room? Not so, Okay, a few. Um, it would be kind of like watching the very last Harry Potter movie, which is awesome. Uh, but And you would probably enjoy it just on its own. Uh, but if you're a true Harry Potter fan, then you know there's so much more. You know, you need all the books. And uh, the Bible is no different. And Jesus really comes alive when we look at the Old Testament, uh, the background to his story. Um, so I want to give us a big picture before we start looking at this uh, book. The big picture is that the Bible is a story about God's interaction with our world. Um, in the beginning of the Bible, God creates the world in the book of Genesis. And soon after, the people he creates, Adam and Eve, turn again, they rebel against him. And according to the Bible's account, everything kind of falls apart there. Uh, Humanity is alienated from God. Humanity is alienated from each other. And uh, the world is ultimately not the way it's supposed to be. And from then on, the rest of the Bible is about God's saving the world. God restoring his good and beautiful world that he created in the beginning. And we actually live in that story now. Uh, It continues on now. But the story itself is all about God saving God's salvation. And the way he does it, he goes about saving the world by first choosing a people. And so in the beginning of the Bible, you see him choosing Noah and his family to be rescued in the ark, if you know that story of Noah and the ark. And you see him choosing Abraham. And he says to Abraham and his family, he says, I'm going to take you to a land that you are going to, there's going to be a good land, a promised land. I'm going to take you there and set you up there and I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. I'm going to save the whole world through you. Um, and so the Bible is a story about God doing just that, and it continues to unfold. And where we pick up here in our passage for tonight is that Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And None of these people are that good of people. And a few of these 12 sons sold one of their brothers, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt. And uh, so Joseph ends up in Egypt, rising in the ranks of the palace in Egypt. Uh, Meanwhile, there's a famine in the land, and so the whole family ends up coming to Egypt, and Joseph saves them. And now, so that's where we pick up. They're in Egypt now. This family that's been promised a land is in Egypt and there's a new pharaoh that comes to power. And Joseph dies. And the pharaoh says, I don't like these people living in our land. And so he enslaves them. So that's where we pick up. Sorry if that was a long-winded explanation of where we are. But I think it's important that we get this background. So uh, let me read our passage for tonight. Uh, and then we'll spend a few minutes studying it together. So this is Exodus uh, from chapters 1 and 2. Also, we're dealing with a pretty big chunk of a passage tonight. It won't be like that all semester, but a really good background on the book. So, uh, starting in 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, 
And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field and in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We're going to continue on. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Okay, that was a lot. Uh, let's take a moment to pray before we begin to look at this more deeply. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. Uh, we come to you from having all kinds of days. Some of us are stressed. Uh, some of us are excited to be back. Others of us are dreading 
being back. Uh, some of us are excited to hear from you and others are uh, not sure what to think or uh, how to approach you. We pray that you would uh, be at work in each one of our hearts to show us something of yourself tonight as we look at your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. If I came up to you and I said, you need to be saved, what would you think? How does it strike you if someone uh, comes up to you and says, you need to be saved? Uh, It might strike you as kind of fanatical, right? Or it might strike you as cheesy, or I don't know what you would think. Or imagine what the average UConn student would think if someone said, you know, you got to be saved. Um, I think we don't really like it, and I think it can be because it seems a little cheesy or it seems a little primitive, like, come on, me, saved, what are you talking about? Um, It's kind of like last semester when we looked at the Gospel of John, we looked at the idea of being born again and how it's this crucial concept to Christianity, and yet it's one that we kind of resist a little bit. And being saved is similar, it's crucial. Uh, the idea of salvation, if you're going to understand God, if you're going to understand the Bible, you need to get this concept of salvation. And Exodus, the whole book, is a book about salvation from slavery, right? Uh, the whole book is about salvation. And here in our passage, we're seeing the beginnings of God's rescue, right, of his people. Just the very beginning of it. And what I want to look at in our passage is the question... When God saves us, where is he taking us? Or, you know, another way to put that would be like, okay, saved for what? What is the point? What is God doing with us, his people? And what we're going to see in our passage is that salvation will lead you to serve God, to trust God, and to be humble and compassionate. So serve God, trust God. And be humble and compassionate. First of all, serve God. Okay, the people of Israel are at the beginning of our passage are enslaved, right? They're slaves in Egypt, and the word that is used for slavery is kind of interchangeable with service. Uh, the same word applies to both. And service and labor and work, they're all the same word in the original language that it's written in, and it's mentioned like a zillion times in our passage. Uh, you know, one of the verses says, uh, they, their lives were made bitter with serving and brick and mortar with every kind of serving. Uh, they were made to serve. And it just says, like, they're, it's hammering home. You're enslaved. You're serving. You're serving. You're serving. Why would there be such an emphasis on service in our passage, do you think? The reason that it starts off focusing so much on the fact that they are serving Pharaoh, serving Egypt, is because the Bible's idea of worship and service is something that Bob Dylan actually said, you got to serve someone. Everybody is serving someone. Uh, and if you serve anything but God or anyone but God, then ultimately what the Bible would say is that you are a slave. Um, as you think about salvation, salvation isn't freedom from everything. Salvation is freedom to serve the right thing, 
to serve God himself. So when God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt, they don't just kind of like stand there for the rest of their lives, right? They, they're rescued from their service in Egypt so they can serve God. Uh, and spoiler alert, the book ends with them worshiping God once they're freed. Uh, they're saved so that they can serve. Uh, you're always serving something. You're always counting. You know, if you think about serving or worship, think about counting on something. Like, what are you counting on? Uh, when I was in high school, I grew up in New Jersey. Anybody grew up in New Jersey? What? Um, I grew up in New Jersey. My senior year of high school was when September 11th actually happened. So I was a senior, and in my high school, uh, there was a weekly really small Bible study prayer group that happened on Thursday mornings before class. And uh, every year a different student led it. And so my senior year, it was passed on to me and I led this, you know, imagine in high school how many people would show up for an early morning prayer group. Like three people came every week. And I was in charge of it my senior year. And uh, September 11th happened on a Tuesday. And so Thursday morning came around and what do you think happened to my prayer, Bible study prayer group that week? It blew up. It was like standing room only in this classroom, this Bible study prayer group that normally only had like three or four people in it every week. Why do you think that happened? You know, you might be able to say like, oh, because people were feeling emotional or something like that. But I want to suggest to you that what happened is that everyone back then, and, you know, churches exploded all over the country too. It wasn't just my little group. Um, but what happened is that everyone kind of was counting on the fact that we were safe. And that notion shattered that day. And so for a brief period, people were like, well, what can I count on? And a lot of people turned to church and God during that time because it was something, you know, I need to be able to count on something. Maybe it's this. Um, what are you counting on? And as you think about what you're counting on in life, I want you to ask yourself the question, is it possible for it to be shattered? You know, maybe we talk a lot about how uh, it's difficult to not be obsessed with grades at UConn, right? So, you know, maybe you're counting on grades and your ability to get them. Or maybe you're counting on money or family or a significant other. There's a lot of things that we count on, and those aren't bad things at all. But... If you count on them, if you live for them, which is worship. Worship is like, you know, what do you think about when you wake up in the morning? You know, where does your mind go when you have a free moment? That's worship. Uh, and when you count on those things and when you worship those things, they will enslave you. That's what the Bible teaches about our uh, the way that we are always serving something. Uh, those things enslave you because they can collapse. They can shatter, you know, grades can collapse. Uh, there's a lot, reputation can collapse. Relationships can collapse. And so if you are counting on those things and you'll spend all your energy kind of building them up and, you know, what that will look like is, and feel like is slavery. Uh, and you well, what God's trying to show us here in our passage is that you'll be free 
when you worship and serve the true God, the God that cannot collapse. So where God's taking his people is so that they can serve him, worship him the way they were made to do. So that's serving God. But I want you to think about uh, what effect salvation would have on trusting God. Um, We're usually prepared for God's salvation by God working behind the scenes through difficult circumstances. And in our passage, the circumstances are about as difficult as they get, right? Uh, God seems completely absent here. Did you notice when we read this long passage from the Bible how God is barely mentioned at all? And look what's going on. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man probably in the world at that time, has enslaved God's, pe- God's chosen people, the ones he made that promise to. And then he starts ordering the midwives to kill all the male babies because he wants to basically eradicate the people. And when that doesn't work, he orders basically anyone who would to toss babies into the Nile, the river. And then, you know, there's a glimmer of hope, right? Because Moses is born. Moses is going to be the one to deliver his people. But what happens when Moses kind of gets out and about? He screws up. He murders someone. And now he's on the run, too. Uh, All in all, these people were enslaved for 400 years. God's people spent 400 years enslaved. And it looks like everything has fallen apart. Everything is horrible, but what you need to see is that every bad thing that we see in this passage actually turns out for good. You can see it a little bit with Moses, right? Because Moses is going to be the hero of the book of Exodus, but to be the hero, he really needs to be like somewhat of an Egyptian and grow up in the house of Pharaoh in the palace. And so uh, the only reason he ends up getting there is because of this thing Pharaoh is doing by killing all the kids, all the babies. Uh, God works everything out for good eventually. And although he seems absent, we'll see as we go along that he's not. I want you to think about your own relationship with God or your own experience of God. And maybe he seems absent to you lately. Maybe he's always seemed absent to you. First of all, I can sympathize with you. If that's you, I can sympathize. And any Christian should be able to sympathize because life is difficult, right? Uh, The point of this passage isn't to just ignore the fact that there's a lot of difficulty here, right? We don't hear someone saying, like, cheer up, guys. It's not so bad. Like, it's really bad. The message isn't to pretend it's not happening. And trusting God in a world like ours is difficult. But the second thing we need to consider is that we need to be careful about arriving at truth from our experience of God. A lot of times we reason this way. We say, I don't feel God, so he must not be there. Or we say, my life is hard and it's sad, so maybe God is not good after all. Maybe he's not being good to me. And what we need to see is that those are actually... You know, while I can sympathize, and I think those thoughts a lot too, that's actually a really arrogant and illogical way to think, right? Because what it's saying is that, like, God must cater to me in every way. 
And if I don't experience him, then he can't, there's no way he could be there. In other words, you know, we're putting ourselves on a level with God when we make those kind of, when we think that way, and when we make those kind of statements. Um, what our passage shows us is that God can very much be at work and his people be clueless about it. Uh, it shows that God can be trusted even when we don't understand why we're going through what we're going through. As you think about your own struggles and the hardships that you face currently, uh, be encouraged to know that to be saved by God, you need to need him. In order for God's people to be drawn into where they need to be, they need to be rescued from slavery. And so God is, typically before God does a mighty work, uh, things are really bad for his people. And God comes in as the rescuer. Uh, so uh, God saves his people to serve him, and he saves his people so that they'll come to trust him. And finally, he saves them so that to make them humble and compassionate. And this is really, you know, a really cool part about this passage and the whole Bible. God always seems to work through nobodies. If you read through the Bible, what you'll find is that God always works through unexpected ways and through nobodies. He always works through weakness instead of power. You can see it in the fact that, um, you know, someone like Moses, who is a screw-up, uh, gets used to save God's people. You can see it in the fact that Jesus comes from like a no-name town uh, that everyone thinks is kind of a dump. Uh, over and over in the Bible, you'll see this pattern that God works, God likes to work through screw-ups and nobodies. Um, and it's the same in our passage. In chapter one, who are the heroes? The heroes are the midwives. These women who uh, go against Pharaoh's decree to kill all the babies, right? Who are midwives? They're women that care for babies when they're born. And a midwife back then was a barren woman. You know, if you couldn't have kids of your own, you would become a midwife. And midwives were considered cursed by the gods because if you were a barren woman, you know, women had basically no value back then. So if you were a woman that couldn't have kids, you, like, really didn't have any value. And so you're this person that everyone kind of views as just cursed. And here in our story, those are the heroes. The midwives are the heroes. Did you notice that the midwives are called by name and the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world? We don't even know his name. You know, we can speculate. There's two or three Pharaohs that we think it might be, but we're not even sure about that. But the midwives are named. The midwives are famous. And the Pharaoh is not. Um, think about the other heroes in this story. Uh, one of them is Pharaoh's daughter who rescues Moses, right? This is a book about God saving the Israelites, God's chosen people, and he uses a Gentile to save them. So this would be a religious outsider God uses to save his people. So he uses a social outsider and a religious outsider, and finally, he's got his boy Moses, right? Except Moses proves that he's incompetent as a leader. He messes every, he goes, he kills a guy, and he has to go into hiding. And what you need to see is God uses all of this stuff to save his people. 
This is great news for if you are like me and you feel like a screw-up a lot of the time, this is great news. If you feel like an outsider, it's great news because what it says is that unlike every other God and every other religion, this God delights to save anyone who would come and he especially seems fond of screw-ups and outsiders. Uh, Maybe your break did not go so well. Maybe your year has not been going so well and maybe it's your fault. Maybe you've made a lot of bad decisions and you keep making them. The good news for you out of this passage is that God delights to not just save screw-ups, but use them powerfully in his kingdom. Um, And if that's who your God is, then you'll be encouraged, like me, to hear that he loves outsiders and people that are broken in all kinds of ways. But also, what it should do is make us compassionate toward other people who are outsiders. If who we are are outsiders rescued by God, then what that should do is it should give us compassion for the nobodies in our lives. Who are the nobodies at UConn, would you say? The custodial staff. <laughs> the custodial staff, sure. A lot of them don't even speak English. Yeah. The custodial staff. The, I would say probably there's a lot of people who just clearly don't know anyone here and walk around alone all the time. I think we see those people around all the time. Um, Maybe there are people in your dorm or in your classes that you can just tell don't fit in here. What will happen to you, what will happen is you begin to know the salvation of God and his love for nobodies is that nobodies around you will begin to become somebodies. Because you'll know that God, to God, nobodies are somebodies. God delights to pour out his love on nobodies. People like midwives, uh, people like slaves, uh, people like outsiders. Now, uh, you come to know God and the salvation that he brings. If you do that, it'll make you serve God, like we saw, and it'll make you trust God, like we've been talking about, and it'll make you humble and compassionate. But how does it actually work? How are we, you know, this is talking about them enslaved in Egypt. How does it work for us? How are we actually saved? In kind of a different way, this passage shows us something about that too. Uh, We just got through Christmas. So for some of you, the Christmas story is still a little more fresh on your mind than Uh, It would be at another time of year. And if you read the Christmas story in the Bible, uh, around the time that Jesus is born, there's another king named King Herod, right? And King Herod feels threatened by God's people, Israel. And so what does he do? He orders that all the male children be killed. Does that sound familiar to you? Okay. Okay. Because Jesus is born around that time, his parents decide that they're going to flee. And where do they flee to? Egypt. Does that sound familiar to you? Okay. The word Exodus, the name of this book, is a Greek word that actually means departure. 
And when Jesus is talking in the book of Luke about heading to the cross where he's going to pay for the sins of his people, you know what he calls it? He says it's his departure. He says it's his exodus. How will you become the person you were meant to be? How will you become, uh, how will the world be set right? How will all of this be made right? How can we become people that trust God and serve him and become compassionate? It's through this true exodus that this story points to. Okay, This story is pointing to the fact that one day there would be a true exodus. There would be a true rescue from slavery, and it would be accomplished by God himself as he gets nailed to a cross to pay for the sins of his people, as he takes on the penalty that we deserve so that we can be brought to him to serve him and to love him and trust him and be compassionate to each other and to the world. That's what you'll become as you come to know Jesus more. As you come to hear more and more this story of salvation, that's who God will make you into. And that's, I'm going to close by praying that that's what God would make us into in this room uh, as we go through the rest of the story this semester. Uh, so let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that uh, you love people that are messed up like us that you delight to use nobodies to accomplish your purposes Uh, we're especially thankful that your salvation is true uh, that you do rescue your people from worshiping things that actually enslave us we pray that you would make us more and more into people uh, that are changed by the salvation found in Jesus and it's in his name that we pray Amen. Okay, let's uh,